1: We're almost there, Rebecca. Oh, it's coming. As you're listening to this out there, it's Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. Ooh. I can't you can't say words in red. Like it's Tuesday. Tuesday, November third, it's coming up. I hope you all are doing better than I <laughs> am right now. Uh, at this point, um, uh. I uh, had, to, had to break out the Tylenol PM last night a little bit to make sure I... I've been waking up at 4. I also have a bunch of meetings this week. There's just a lot going mm-hmm. on. But the 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 overarching situation is what it is. And I know, you, Rebecca, you and I have talked about poll watching oh, and trying yeah. to get a sense and trying to feel good. and But also, you know... Even if the thing we don't want to happen happens, you know, how are we going to, mm-hmm. we're all, we're all over here, we, all the two of us We're here, here yeah. are doing our best. I'm
3: doing a lot of walking into a room and forgetting why I'm there or picking up right. my phone for a purpose. And then once it's unlocked, having no idea what the thing is that I was going to do, you know, opening yeah. an email to respond yeah. to it 25 times and not responding to it. A lot of that, a lot of uh, just sort mm. of aimless staring at the wall. Trying to avoid staring into the void, I
1: guess. Yeah, I had notes from a meeting from yesterday. I'm just looking at them now, and I have no idea what these (laughs) things are referring to. One is, one is um, spying, just with an underline. (laughs) Uh, one is hel- heavy LGBTQ. I don't know what that, I mean, sounds great. Mm-hmm. It sounds like a good time. I don't know what it's in reference to. And the other one is the Nantucket Inn. Oh, also don't know what that's in that reference to. That sounds nice. It's like waking up in the middle of the night and, uh, you know, kind of like randomly writing down some great idea. I'm sure once I talked to the folks I was on the call with, I'll remember it. But I was like, heavy LBGTQ spying in the non-ticket it in. It's sort of like some kind of like Mad Libs mm-hmm. game that only has the libs, or only the mad and none of the thing that goes. <laughs> All of
3: the mad and none of the lib.
1: <laughs> Though Mad Libs is not a bad subtitle for the story of this election, I think, mm. um, to some degree. Um, well, here's our show. Let's do a sponsor break and we'll try to, we'll try to talk about some book news.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Yin Press, your favorite publisher of Japanese manga and novels. Tragedy unfolds on the first day of spring when a train derails at Nishi Yuagahama Station, changing the course of hundreds of lives. Two months later, a rumor spreads of a ghost with the power to send others back in time, inevitably attracting those who seek a chance to go back to that fateful day. The God of Nishi Yuga Hama Station by Takeshi Morase is a moving story about the unpredictability of life. It aims to comfort tired souls and answers the famous question, what would you do if you had a second chance? Told through the eyes of a student, a son and a bride to be, this heart wrenching novel is a reflection of how grief impacts us and what we must do to pick up the pieces. Don't miss this literary debut full of fabulism and time travel by Japanese writer Takeshi Murase. To learn more, please visit yinpress.com. And thanks again to Yin Press, your favorite publisher of Japanese manga and novels, for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books for Young Adults. From number one New York Times bestselling author Jennifer L. Armantrout comes a book I have to tell you about. It's Half Blood. And it follows Alex and her mom who have spent years on the run from The Covenant, a school where their pure descendants of gods hone their powers and half mortal teens train to kill demons for them. When her mom is murdered, Alex has two options. She can become a servant for the Pures or work twice as hard to catch up in her training. The second option seems easier, but it gets a little complicated, you see, when pureblood Aiden becomes her personal trainer. So falling for Aiden isn't her biggest problem, surprisingly. As demons close in, she must fight to stay alive, even while others around her are dropping dead. So again, Jennifer L. Armantrout does the thing when it comes to romance fantasy adventure all those things other books are blood and ash a shadow in the ember all those good things make sure check out half blood by jennifer l armentrout and thanks again to bloom books for young adults for sponsoring this episode
1: follow up shouts or I guess you wanted to pass along yeah. something that our listeners might like in uh, on the heels of our discussion of Dr. I got a I lovely enjoyed I hope others did too. Yes,
3: I got a lovely email from Bernard Schwartz at the 92nd Street Y in New York. Thank you Bernard. Um if you're not familiar the 92nd Street Y historically does just a bonkers amount of wonderful programming, literary and otherwise, but Mm -hmm. it's a a great place to go to like see an author talk or see two cultural figures in conversation with each other. And of course, that's very complicated right now. Um, One of the things that they have done, though, is very recently, they had Ethan Hawke record a three hour abridged version of Gilead. And I did not, I did not know this existed. So when Bernard emailed us, um, he sent us the SoundCloud link to listen to it. It is Lovely. Um, maybe like really I think the about the only thing I can put into my brain at this point is a reading of Gilead. So this is also perfect timing. Um, but Hawk's mm. voice is really beautiful and you can purchase it by going to 92y.org slash Gilead for I think about $15. Um, it's broken up into five audio files that are about 40 minutes a piece, so you can also Sort of choose the timing that you want to listen to those, but re- mm. it's really excellent. I listened to the first one yesterday afternoon. Um, and it did it settled my soul for for a little bit. So um thank you, Bernard and the ninety second street y and folks head on over there nine y the letter y dot org slash Gilead. and of course, we'll have the link in the show notes
1: the bookwright slash listen and you can navigate to the bookwrite podcast page from there. the ninety second street y. You know, I think of myself as the gold standard for literary events because they do stuff mm-hmm. like this. They get Ethan Hawke to do. I mean, this is not atypical from the kind of thing they would do. Just a completely different strata of event production and people involved. Um, I didn't get there as often. I was like, it was on the east side, and it was always hard to get to. And also, it's it's like it's like a concert. T- I mean, it's not like a Broadway ticket, but it could be. You're getting good value, but you pay for the value, too, as well. But I think the gold standard in, in a long time was the reading and literary series at 92nd Street Wise. So if you find yourself ever in New York as a book nerd in some time in, say, the 2040s um, <laughs> when you can go to things— do check out. I, I would behoove you to look at the schedule for the Ninety Second yeah. Street Y if you're coming to visit.
3: I will um, and, and
1: see if there's something up your alley. The
3: fifteen bucks for this audio recording of Ethan Hawke is not only a mm-hmm. steal for what it is. Like that's a pretty good, you know, deal for an audiobook in general. But it's a great price and for the kind of programming the Ninety Second Street Y does. And they're a nonprofit. You know. Yeah. arts nonprofits are struggling right now. This is really tough. So if you like it, if you see other stuff there, if you've been looking for a literary place to put some financial support during COVID, um, mm-hmm. that would that is a bastion of literary culture um, that we certainly want to see continue to exist. So thank you for listening to our show. Bernard, and for yes. reaching out. When I DM'd Jeff that you had sent us that and that we could listen to it and check it out, um, there was a lot of Muppet arming, uh, or as Muppet army yeah. as you get. <laughs> so.
1: And I, and I started doing John Nash yar, uh, yarn connection because I'm like, Ethan Hawke, Gilead, weren't we just saying that Jack, <laughs> the first scene of Jack felt like a bizarro before sunrise? Which stars? Ethan Hawke. And I was like, it all, it all connects. Galaxy it all, brand. I the Je- I'm, seeing, I'm seeing the Matrix. I'm seeing the Matrix, Jeff. You can see it. And then it's like, oh, wait, you're nuts and you need to calm down. That's just a coincidence.
3: <laughs> also, like not, literary New York is a relatively... Uh, small circle so it's not a yeah. shock that uh, ethan hawk who did write a book also shows up in uh...
1: ethan Hawke. i mean we think about this from time to time might is in the upper echelon of like legitimately literary nerd celebrities mm-hmm. right i mean he's written books he does stuff like this like he's in dead poet society reciting whitman for god's sake <laughs> i mean come true, on it's true. um so it's uh uh, which Whitman was also talked about. Whitman was also talked about in Jack by Marilyn Robinson. Yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> really cool. I'm looking forward to that. I'm, I, I I went ahead and bought the thing, mm-hmm. and because uh, I wanted to support them, and it's been a long time. Um, I also need to troll the back catalog because I'm guessing there's some other gems. Ooh,
3: that's a great uh, idea
1: find. Yeah. So anyway, all right. I guess the big I know is the big news of the week related to books, because I had civilians Mm. texting me about this story. Civilians being people that don't, um, you know, kind of see as one of their primary filters for the internet and the world, the world of books and reading. And this is, there's really two strand related stories um, that are related and not related. Did one come out because of the other? I can't really parse this, Rebecca, can you? You know,
3: it's interesting, the, well so the the story that's actually new this week is yeah. the that the That the owner of the Strand, Nancy Bass Wyden, put out a plea on social media saying that you know the store is really struggling. Um, It lost three hundred and sixteen thousand dollars in September alone. Um, She was asking you know if you can do anything, please support us. And because the reach of the Strand is so deep and wide, um, they were flooded, like really flooded, twenty five thousand orders over the weekend um, from people in support of the strand. And all of that discussion, I think, gave rise to people digging up news that wasn't news when it happened in the summer, because the headline on the Barron's piece um, is from July of 2020, written by Ed Lynn, noting that Nancy Bass Wyden in July had purchased um, uh, like $100,000 worth of Amazon stock. And this was not her first purchase. She was increasing her investment in Amazon stock. Mm. And this is only known because she's married to a senator and their financial stuff has to be disclosed. So she knew that it would be right. disclosed and it came out Um Yeah. So it was that in uh, April and May, she had purchased about $115,000 worth of Amazon stock in addition to other investments and in addition to previous investments she had made in Amazon. And I think that... um, the general tenor of the way that she talks about the, how the Strand mm. was struggling and the request for community support led to um, some side eye, especially from folks inside the Strand's organization. Of um, yeah, but she also invests in Amazon, and it's like sort of yeah. revived the conversation where I didn't see anything about this back in July when I it, don't
1: remember seeing it. I don't remember seeing it when it, it either. came
3: out. So, but yeah. those are the the two pieces. I'm not sure they're actually related. They just feel related in the world of headlines or, you know, people have made them related. But those are the two things that happened with The Strand this week.
1: Well, and we talked about it a little bit yesterday because we both, I think, have, I don't know if they're unpopular opinions, alternate takes, different angles on how to think about this. Because there's one version of this, the one that kind of circulates about her buying Amazon stock is, how can she buy Amazon stock when you know, she's framing it as David versus Goliath and how how morally good it is to support the Strand. Right. And by implication, and I think sometimes explication, how morally bad it is than to use Amazon. Some other things about, you know, the layoffs that have happened at the Strand, taking PPP money, and basically a bad look, I guess. If some people think it falls into the category of bad look. Some people think it falls into the category of like moral hypocrisy, right? Mm-hmm. I think there's there's various ways of looking at this. Um, and I think I've, I think the frame I used yesterday with you, I I continue was, I think it was not wrong of her to do. I don't think it's a crime to invest in Amazon if she's the owner of this strand. I think it was probably stupid to do for the optics reasons where she knew it was going to be disclosed. I have the, the strands relationship with its employees have long been more adversarial than I don't know. It, it, it's been adversial ever since her father owned the business. They have a very strong union. They have very opinionated people. Um, there's been open kinds of talk of strikes, strikes, and not you know animosity mm-hmm. between ownership and, and employment over there. So, knowing that, if I were in her position, and it's one hundred fifteen thousand dollars worth of Amazon stock, it ain't worth the trouble. Invest in something else. I mean, it just ain't worth the trouble. I I think maybe I am attuned to the hypocrisy piece of if you're going to demonize Amazon, it is very difficult to take you seriously if you do buy large Mm -hmm. chunks of Amazon explicitly. If you buy S&P 500, which I should say, you know, my retirement account, S&P 500, I I own by proxy some Amazon stock. I also own by proxy Apple and these other things you can do it other ways. Like it's not such a good investment and it's such a small amount. Like if you're going to buy Amazon stock, as buy $4 million worth as a millionaire as the, you know, like just, <laughs> just lean your shoulder into the, the amount of potential upside she's buying herself for the aggravation seems to me just like a bad deal in general. I just, yeah. We both kind of landed on that. Yeah, right? I think is that that's, fair? You know,
3: that's, that is where I landed on it. And I have the, for moments like this, I do have the benefit of living in the living in a house with a financial yeah. advisor who thinks about these kinds of things. So we, kind of tore through this. And one of the places that Um, one of the places that I started and that I ended up is that the person is separate from the business and um, Mm -hmm. like financially that is the best practice that the business has its funds and then the person and their household have their own funds and when you're starting up a business you're you know starting it with your personal funds and putting them into the business but when you're running something like the strand that's been around for a bajillion years and has really complex and huge finances It's not like Nancy Bass Wyden pulling all the money out of her personal savings or all of her investments to try to save the store. If it is a sinking ship, that's not a good decision for either her as an individual or the business. Mm -hmm. That would be throwing good money after bad. And the conversation, I think it's totally fair to say, you know, like you can't, dip into both buckets you can't um, beg people to support local business and demonize amazon while you're also um, making money off of amazon although you and i were talking yesterday that there's a hot take version of that that's like you know what like if amazon's coming for your business you might as well make some money off of amazon
1: (laughs) it's a hedge it's a hedge
3: the the part that um that I'm the most confused about is also why Amazon and why such a small bet for it to be this kind of a big deal. Like Amazon stock yeah. did go up a lot in the early spring, but it's been relatively flat since June or July. And for a $100,000 investment, like it says right here in this piece in Publishers Weekly or um, sorry, in the piece in the Washington Post that. They lost $316,000 in September alone. This Amazon stock that she bought would have to triple in value just to cover the loss of one month. So that's not going to happen. (laughs) Like, if...
1: Yeah, it's... It's
3: not going to happen. Like, I get it. I think the... um, I think there's a generous reading of this. That's um, there. She's trying to do the best that she can with her personal investments, and who knows how she actually feels about Amazon. But she may think it's a canny financial move to make here. But either, I mean, she knew it was going to be released, right? So either she knew it was going to be released, and she doesn't care about the optics, or somehow the optics had not occurred to her. And I find that really diff- <laughs> that latter one really difficult to believe that it just hadn't occurred to her that this would be. A bad look.
1: Mm-hmm. Maybe it's <laughs> worth reading the quote. This is in the Barons piece from Edlyn uh, by Ed Lynn, which we'll link in the show notes. Here's her statement. Um, I have to make sure that I have the resources to keep the strand going. I continue to stand against the unfair giveaways from local governments to giant corporations like Amazon. But the economic opportunity presented by the unfortunate downturn in the market will allow me to keep the strand in business. That,
3: I don't understand I, how that math works. This is, I,
1: I don't understand the math. I, I just, I almost would prefer the hot take of like, you know what? If Amazon's going to put us all out of business, this is a hedge against this trans performance. It's very difficult to me. Again, I think within the spirit and letter of the law, this is all fine. I think you do lose, if you think demonizing Amazon helps you with the spirit, the spree decor that will help Mm -hmm. you keep the business open, I think you're in danger of threatening that by doing something like this. I think the average expected value of goodness that you get out of doing this, I can't pencil out myself. Uh, Moral objections Mm -hmm. aside, I just strategically, hey, she runs a much bigger business than I do. Um, I'm sure she knows what she's doing. Boy, but there's some angle to this that I don't really understand for this to make sense. Yeah,
3: it just feels confusing i can't make sense of it either and i think it's understandably disheartening for employees of the strand whose whose lives and livelihoods are impacted in a very real way um you know like a much more a closer to the bone kind of way because they're not millionaires um by what's going on with the shutdown it will really affect them if the store closes um but for her to, like, sort of the core of the argument here seems to be, like, the un, the unsaid thing that's hovering seems to be some people feeling like um, she's she has a duty to save the Strand with her own personal finances. And yeah. I don't believe that that's true for any business. Um, and I don't believe it's yeah. a smart choice for any business. I also believe, right. you know, I want to give her, you know, the benefit of the doubt as a human person that if the store closed and she had to let all of her employees go, that would be a painful decision that she would not relish. It would suck for everybody. Um, But I don't think that she's under an obligation to bankrupt herself in order to prevent it from happening.
1: No, I I don't. I I think that's a big ask for anyone. Right. I mean, I I don't think you can. I think that's unreasonable to ask a sort of a moral proposition. And as a practical one, Who's going to do that? If you're expe- most small businesses fail, like that's part of it too. So, if mo- if the truth is that most small businesses fail, but there's also the cultural expectation that you will go down with the ship, the average expect the average good decision would be never to start something, right. right? Because if I don't go down with a ship, that's more likely to sink than not. That's a lose lose kind of a situation. So, I, again, I'm biased because I'm kind of in this situation to a lot of degree. Like, I, it's sinking my family's fortunes to keep a side up that's not going to sustain on its own, that feels like double double jeopardy, yeah, right? Where I'm single jeopardy is more this, than enough for me. This
3: feels, the the second part of this, the like large public plea for support, feels yeah. similar to me to some of the stories that we've talked about in previous years where a bookstore is struggling and they launch a GoFundMe or they like really try to drum up community support to stay open. And I continue to feel like that's a bullet that you only get to shoot once. So it's interesting wow. that she made this plea. They had this huge response. And part of me is like, oh boy, you know, like 25,000 orders. What if you spread those out between a bunch of independent bookstores? Like how many other stores could you like be keeping open if we weren't all just pouring money into the strand? Um, but people yeah. put their money where, where, they, where they want to. Um, but like we're still, you know – I don't know that we're early in COVID, but we're not late in it. And we're seeing other cities go into lockdown, you know, go back into lockdown in Europe. It's totally with, I think within the realm of possibility that we'll see another major um, stay home order Mm. throughout the U S you know, going into the cold months and into the winter. And um, I don't think that she can ask this question again of their community. So like, was this a last ditch Effort, um, how many like how many times are the supporters of the strand or of any business going to be willing to like fire up and order? Some, like, somebody bought 197 books, um, and it's you know, that person I'm assuming I, did I not. Should,
1: I should have added, I should add three more to my cart. A nice, <laughs> even Too. I didn't think about that, nice you know,
3: like to I'm point. gonna assume they didn't need all 197 yeah. of those books but it was like let me buy some things cuz i have the money apparently and they're going to you know support this store but is that person going to be willing to do that again and you know normally they receive about yeah. 300 orders a day so we're talking about wow. you know like 800 days worth of orders coming in at once wow, wow wow
1: wow um yeah i you know that's an interesting point about how much water oh, is sorry, in the 80 well days and worth. how much people <laughs> How many people are willing to dip into the well how many times I think the macro piece is really important about where we are in an economic cycle as it relates to bookstores. A couple of things one is the covid spike we're seeing right now is worse than the first two waves mm-hmm. we've seen like we're up we're up right to think I think the worst is ahead of mm-hmm. us frankly for the winter i'm looking at the projections and the other thing about that is the stimulus hasn't come through the second one we've gotten which was keeping some people the ppp loans were helping those are people running out um the the stimulus packages the extended unemployment i don't know after the election depending what happens if more stimulus is going to come out but like and then it's the christmas season keeping people out of the bookstores during the holiday season is much more painful than keeping out of the stores in April and May, mm-hmm. even though that's a good season. And maybe the if people have less money and the spike is worse during a more important season, the aggregating effects of those things, I'd be very concerned about. You know, we've we've had some feel good stories about bookstores and making it and the curbside and I don't know. I, I think I think there was a there was a false dawn Mm-hmm. Um about that because of we didn't we didn't know what we didn't know and I'm very concerned for most businesses at all yeah. that have depend on brick and mortar, but bookstores especially I'm very, very concerned about, um frankly.
3: Yeah, I share those same so. concerns and I think we're having this moment right now, where some places have gone to, like I was, you know, told my story a couple of weeks ago about having done an in-person book shopping yep. trip. The Strand, for what it's worth, is also open. Like you can see pictures on the internet of a line of people going down the block waiting to get in. So they're open with limited capacity, doing masks and social distancing. But you can go browse books at the Strand and, and buy things. And it it would seem to me that like a steady. Trickle, even if it's lower than usual, is yeah. more sustainable in the long term than like they got 80 days worth of orders at once, you know, by doing that. So maybe you bought yourself, well, I mean, you bought yourself about 10 weeks, but yeah. what does the impact of that do? Like now it's all over the Washington Post that the strand had 25,000 orders. So I think there's also a potential outcome where people. Turn their attention elsewhere. Of like, well, instead of buying my books from the Strand, I'll support this other bookstore. Or instead of buying books, because the Strand got twenty five thousand orders, they're probably okay. Let me put my money into this mm. local restaurant or this shop down the street that I care about. Like, there, who knows? But there are a lot of ways that um, that big plea that got a big positive response could backfire, and I just think that's something to think through really carefully. I'm, I'm sure that they thought through it. Um, but it's, it seems possible to me that there are outcomes of this that were maybe failures of imagination.
1: Yeah. And you know, it reminds me of that thing. And I think there's a human nature element to this being asked for help or willing to contribute to something. You know, there's this old saying about, um, if you're, if you're battling with addiction, everyone's there with you for the intervention. But far fewer people are there for the relapse, Mm, right? mm -hmm. Because then it's a chronic condition. And I think there is people give other people an organization, institution, they'll rally the first time to get people to rally over time, multiple times when their own finances are in probably in trouble, frankly, like it's tough out there, man. Like, I just don't know this might, is this a survival technique? This might be a survival technique for a time, but this is not a sustainable right. survival yes. technique. And maybe that distinction mm-hmm. is kind of what we're circling around. And you do what you can to survive until you can figure out how to sustain. My concern is this isn't enough to get to the point where you can sustain. And you, the next time you say this in December, I don't think I would expect another 25,000 mm-hmm. orders. I'd not try sure to expect 10. I'm not sure I would expect five.
3: Yeah. Frankly, and just given. This point. Like, but maybe I'm wrong. I mean, maybe yeah, I'm like, wrong. who knows what's going to happen with purchasing and online ordering and what will happen with Amazon in the cover in the coming months but like it would take a very long time for that hundred thousand dollar investment in Amazon to make enough money in any sense to like save the strand for the long term so like I understand I think why it got surfaced this week to put alongside This, you know, positioning of independent bookstores is a noble thing that deserve community support. Like, meanwhile, the owner is investing in Amazon. But that investment is, I think, really very separate from the life of the Strand. There's no way that it can really make a meaningful difference, even if she wanted to spend that Strand, that um, Amazon investment money or the dividends from it, too.
1: It's very strange. It's a very strange situation to find themselves in. I... On, on its face, I love the strand. It when I moved to New York, the first thing I did after I dropped my bags off at the use hostel is I got on the train and got lost trying to go down to the strand. I love the strand. I like the vibe. It reminds me of a New York that is romantic and older. Um, I also I actually kind of frankly like the contentiousness of the owner man. It just feels like it makes it feel real somehow. Mm-hmm. Like it's a real kind of like living breathing thing, I guess, and not just a monument to something else. Um I would be extremely sad to see something happen to the strand, so I'm pulling for the strand itself, um, and I think that's the thing that's maybe the, the the affirmative case for me in this kind of a situation is don't bring Amazon into it yeah. that's what i I mean again, if that's what I means, like, we want to keep the strand going. Just we need you to know that if you love the strand, now's the time. now's the time, and we're going we're doing our best as you can imagine. This is a horrible time. For everyone, it's a horrible time for us. We've been on lockdown. Everything. You, we're not telling you anything you don't know. Right. But if, if you're interested, if you were gonna buy some books, you know, this would be a really time that would make a huge difference. Just leave the others. Don't. Do you have to create the villain? Like, does actually would that? Maybe it's me maybe i don't have the same amazon animosity that some people do i think the strand cares more about demonizing amazon than anyone who might want to patronize the strand does frankly make the case for the strand not against something else maybe well that's- yeah
3: it's interesting like you don't see that demonizing of like a particular chain i think in other fields or if you do i'm not exposed to it like i don't see yeah. the the local place around the corner for me that is one of my like three places i'm deeply invested in seeing survive covid you know like Mm -hmm. they're not sending out they're not posting stuff on instagram about like you know don't go to applebee's tonight come get your chicken sandwich here you know it's just here's a picture of our amazing chicken sandwich don't you want this and they are just, you know, posting about the stuff that makes them great and the things that make you want to have this place in your neighborhood and support it. And I don't see like mom and pop hardware stores posting about come buy your hammer here instead of Walmart. <laughs> like mm-hmm. so I just I understand the fixation on Amazon from bookstores because Amazon began as a bookstore with the forever intent of using books as a loss leader. Like I understand why bookstores feel that connection, but consumers don't, and it's just—I just think it's not effective messaging to um, yeah. to like you know functionally demonize your consumers too. Like there's a way mm. to be a book buyer who supports the, your local independent bookstore and also sometimes buys things on Amazon. And I don't love the optics of um, the potential of walking into an independent bookstore and like being shamed or even like assumptively shamed by posters on the wall right. for, for that behavior. Like I'm here and I want to give you yeah. my money. So let's just talk about that and why you're good.
1: I mean, it's, it's maybe the great Mecca of reading life in North America, I mean, it's New York, it's, you know, in it's in Flatiron, you know, village adjacent kind of down there, like, you've got enough juice to make a case for yourself to remind people and, and, and tell them the truth about your situation. Powell's is open to a little bit. I didn't even know this. We were down getting flu shots because that's the only kind of thing that would get the four of us out of the house um, at one time. And we're walking by Powell's and if you've ever been there, if you don't know, it's like Uh, It's a city block in multiple levels, but there's two entrances on either corner. Um, And they've opened up one of the corners, and you can't go into, like, the deep stacks. Mm. You can go into, like, the the, the front area where there's new releases generally in Powell's merch, and they've wheeled in some stuff from the kids section and some of the other things. So there's a little... You can't go just wander back there, but they're trying to do some stuff. Again, I don't know... I don't know if that move, if that is a sustaining kind of a move at all. Does that help them at all to do anything? Um, I was telling someone else today, is like, I was walking by Powell's and I was looking in the store, and my daughter was pointing up at some book that she had just read, and there was some other one she was interested in, and I was like, you know what? If Powell's was open, in, if if the whole thing was open right now, and it was, um, if I felt good about going in there, which frankly I don't, I don't feel good about taking my my four of us into a store right now, just for for fun. I would probably buy five hundred dollars worth of stuff just because I could. I would just like I would just like ex- exult in like I can buy stuff and I feel good. I'm so ready to, you know, um, do that kind of a situation. I hope at one point, you know, maybe it's going to be next summer uh, to walk into the and walk into a, a bookstore that I love, like Powell's or the Strand, and um, do my own version of the Roaring Twenties <laughs> when it comes to buying you know uh, boring hardcovers about axes and shade that no one else. Cares about. All right, let's do another sponsor and then uh, hit some other news.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds. College student Blake and her girlfriend have one goal join the exclusive sorority that promises connections to a network of trailblazing women of color. Now, Ella's acceptance is a sure thing. She's a daughter of a Serena Society alum. After all, Blake, on the other hand, lacks Ella's pedigree and her confidence. Luckily, Though really unluckily, she finds courage at the bottom of a liquor bottle. When she drinks, she's bold and funny, and as pledging intensifies, so does Blake's drinking. Thanks again to Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds for sponsoring this episode.
2: This episode is sponsored by LavenderCon and Little District Books. LavenderCon, which is just the best name for a book festival, is a new book festival in Washington, D.C. It's presented by Little District Books, which is Washington, D.C.'s all-queer bookstore, both of whom are dedicated to celebrating LGBTQIA authors and stories. The festival will feature over 80 authors, including Terry J. Benton Walker, the author of the Blood Debts duology, famed audiobook narrator Natalie Nottis, with her debut romance novel called Gay the Prey Away, and Rashid Newsom, author of My Government Means to Kill Me. And as I am looking at the website right now, breaking news, I saw a familiar face, and that is Book Riot senior contributor Susie Dumont. I'm so excited to see her name on this list, author of Queerly Beloved and Looking for a Sign. So you have so many great authors to discover at the festival. LavenderCon will feature 20-plus panels with topics for middle grade, young adult, and adult readers discussing romance, fantasy, horror, writing craft, and more. There will be a queer artist market, so you can go nab all of the great art and stickers and pins and handmade goods. The festival is happening June 29th and 30th in Washington, D.C., and you can either grab Saturday, Sunday, or two-day VIP tickets, which come with a few extra perks. Thank you once again to LavenderCon and Little District Books for sponsoring today's show. We hope you make your way over to the festival.
1: This one, this one broke broke this morning. Um, more, more systemic, high-profile. I'd say commitments, initiatives from Big Five publishing towards increasing the diversity of their employees, their mm-hmm. lists. Um, uh, centering and elevating marginalized voices of all kind. Rebecca, what what did what did they do over Hachette? Tell me what they
3: Hachette did. is launching a an imprint called Legacy Lit that's going to live in the Perseus books. Division. It's called. It's called Legacy Lit, and it focuses on books by BIPOC writers. It will be led by uh, Christian Trotman. She is going to be the VP and publisher. Formerly, she was the executive editor at Hachette, where she's worked for four mm. years, and a companion piece i'm looking at a publisher's weekly piece by edna watka but there was sort of a companion piece about all of this in the new york times today that mentions that she pitched this idea herself which we love to see um great to uh, great to see yeah you know People of color being able to pitch ideas like this for an imprint. She has enough power um, and capital within Hachette to be able to make it happen. So the first book is going to be published in January of 2022, and the imprint will be publishing between 12 and 15 books Per year, um, her Twitter feed identifies her as the Beyonce of books. Um, she's also the co-author, along with Brenda Jones, of four books in the series Queens of the Resistance, um, which is published by Plume and is about uh, women politicians. So I'm going to be learning some mm. things about Krishan Trotman. Uh, really excited to um, to see this happen. 15 years in book publishing, um, so lots of experience that she has, and uh, she mentions in this piece, you know, seeing a consistent craving by bipoc authors readers and publishing insiders to be understood and to be seen and legacy lit will be a home for writers where there's she says a core understanding of culture and diversity and um, so
1: really I think that's to see that. really interesting stuff we've talked in a lot of ways over many years about what this kind of move how different ways these kinds of moves can make. If you want to diversify your lists, um, you want to include more people that you haven't historically, what are the options to do it? Um, There is the imprint level where you have a dedicated imprint, right? There is the just increase the share of voice among your existing imprints, right? And I think there are strengths and weaknesses to both. I think that last point that that piece made is maybe the most interesting one. The way the value add of having a dedicated imprint is dedicated, specific experience, mm-hmm. sensitivity and inclination to do this well, right. Where you can get sort of almost economies of scale for understanding and sensibilities around what it means to be inclusive and what it means to do this really differently, um, in a real way. So I sometimes I'm like, I just wish there was more in just I uh, I don't know, crown or, um, um, I'm trying to think of a good example. And uh, Grand Central. I wish there was more marginalized voices in Grand Central. That's a sub-imprint uh, of Fichette. But I think I'm persuaded by the – you actually do need different understandings and sensibilities to do it well. So I'm more inclined about the consolidation and concentration mm-hmm. and collaboration that come by with by putting together sort of a dedicated team, Really, Rebecca? Does that does that make sense to it, you? Because we have talked about back and forth about. Yeah, this.
3: you know, I actually I think we need both. Um, that
1: yeah, that's fair. Why? Why? I, pick? Well, why I choose? think it's
3: a. I think it can be a problem for publishers or for like any you know media group to silo off. Like this is the this is the imprint that does the BIPOC authors mm. um, and there's a history in publishing of publishing houses having, you know, like one imprint romance is sort of known for this sometimes um, or some of the older uh, romance imprints, like that's the black imprint, you know? So then the right. the other imprints right. stay very white. Um, I don't want to see that happen anymore. So I think we need both that um, black women, women of color leading teams like this, you know, probably just by virtue of, Trotman's understanding of the industry, the connections that she has, the communities that she is a member of, and the priorities of this organization, her hiring, I would think, for this imprint is going to look different than the very white hiring of publishing in general. And that's wonderful to have a team that, as you're saying, understands inclusivity and culture and diversity at a core level, and they're not having to, like, catch up and learn it. But I do think that this needs, that versions of this need to happen at every imprint and at every level throughout the industry so that those imprints that are like mystery thriller is really notorious for this. Like it is very, very Mm -hmm. difficult to find mysteries and thrillers that aren't by white guys. Um, And it would be wonderful to see those imprints that publish, you know, big blockbuster mystery thriller books just all up and down. What happens there if you're hiring editors of color and publicists of color and bringing on writers of color and, you know, just, Reaching more readers serving more people by giving them stories that they can see themselves in or that they see their communities reflected in so I I think that we need both. I'm really glad to see publishers getting behind experienced, smart women of color who have like have what it takes to do the work and we don't know if like the old model of publishing was ever going to promote them into these positions but yeah, now there's been right. this the cultural reckoning and a real understanding that um, people need to be put into positions of power so that they can make these changes. So I'm really mm-hmm. really glad to see that happening but I'm hopeful that um, these new imprints that are focusing on BIPOC works and serving the BIPOC community won't be the only place And publishing where this work is happening.
1: Yeah, from a consumer's perspective, I mean, we've talked about this before too, like people are pretty much imprint ignorant. Right. Like when it comes down to buying a book or hearing about a book, you're not going to know it came from this imprint, Legacy Lit, or like something like One World at Random House you're just going to find the book in front of you. So it has the effect of once it's into the field, it's not siloed anymore, but you're right about being, do they get the same kind of marketing budgets? Right. Like you've talked, I mean, this is, you've hit this more than I have. Do they have the same kind of marketing budget? Do they have the same number of publicists per title and that kind of thing where um, you can create, you can, you can get someone to get open up Photoshop and create a colophon for you. Um, but does it have the same status in terms of resources and commitment that it would if it were Crown or mm-hmm. if it were Little A or you know one one of the other or FSG or Knopf or one of the other top tier um, imprints um, that are related to it. So twelve to fifteen titles, so not too many, but quite a few. Um, looking forward to seeing what comes out of that for sure. Where do you want to go? We we can do. Well, let's. This is a follow up that ends with a whimper, not a bang. It looks like. Um, Barnes and Noble, one of the great stories that we covered like two years ago. This feels like it feels like a
3: really long time of, ago. of
1: humankind where Deimos Parneros was fired by Barnes and Noble and then sued. And some things were said, um, alleged uh, sexual harassment, got fired. Then he sued him for wrongful termination. And they had the there was ongoing litigation where. Everyone was suing each other involved, as far as I can tell. <laughs> mm-hmm. This all happened before um, Barnes & Noble was sold, right? I mean, I think that's another yes. interesting piece of the pie here. Um, Len Riggio, who was the former owner and was the founder of Barnes & Noble, sounds like more of a personal feud between them. Um, and this could there could be some giant settlement for Parneros here. As these things go, as we know, there's NDAs involved. Um both parties have agreed to drop their claims against the other with prejudice and have agreed to cover their own costs. Mm. I don't know enough about the law to parse that too well. It doesn't feel to me like a situation where Reggio, or, or I guess Barnes & Noble is really the um, defendant in this case, said, you know what, Deimos, here's four million bucks, go away. This doesn't feel like that, though it could be. Yeah. Maybe there's like, let's get rid of this dude, but it's over. Yeah, it's over. It's over.
3: Definitely so, a whimper, not go. a bang. Uh, let's do. You want to talk about some things that are good for our souls? Do we need to take another yeah, let's, break?
1: let let's, let's, let's take a break and separate it from that uh, unpleasantness. So we'll do a sponsor.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. From the best-selling author of The Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle comes a new mystery. A fog has swept the planet, killing anyone it touched except for the island where villagers and scientists live in harmony, the villagers content to do what they're told by the scientists. But then one of the beloved scientists is found brutally stabbed to death, and they realize the security system around the island has malfunctioned and has wiped everyone's memories of exactly what happened the night before. So someone on the island is a murderer and they don't even know it. Best-selling author Stuart Turton is a major voice in the mystery space. The Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle and his second novel, The Devil and the Dark Water, have sold over 450,000 copies and become a TikTok phenomenon. He's received fantastic reviews from best-selling authors and major outlets. Make sure to check out his latest work, The Last Murder at the End of the World. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Gallery Books. So Anna Green thought she was marrying Liam West for access to subsidized family housing while at UCLA, which is an interesting reason to marry someone, but you know, in this economy. So anyway, she signed divorce papers when the graduation caps were tossed and she thought she was done at
1: okay all right parade of goodness can, parade. do we have enough for a parade we is have, just, can, or is this a couple of like can two, sauntering arm in arm, arm or what do we got
3: uh, can two items be a parade
1: it's a great <laughs> what point do you I think, think at, at least a, 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 a three you need three for a parade you need three for a
3: parade all right so these are sauntering yeah. arm in arm uh, but the babysitter's yeah. club adaptation on Netflix it was announced this morning is getting a second season um i i was surprised that there hadn't already been the decision and announcement about a second season like part of my brain was like wait didn't we know this already um the the second season is due to premiere in 2021 which this piece on the av club by kaylee shorman um notes like that might actually be relatively attainable now that productions are finding ways to go back to work like mid-pandemic uh so i could not be happier about this as i mentioned i think early in our quarantines here i mainlined the babysitters club over a weekend and it was just lovely and funny and thoughtful and progressive in all the ways that i wanted it to be and i'm just really looking forward to having another season of that did y'all ever watch it in your house
1: my family devoured it um and it, I, I was doing. I used the occasion to work on something else. Yeah. I, I didn't say I watched some of it, but they, they were locked and loaded. And so I used the, I used it as cause distraction to, <laughs> to do something else that I don't remember. <laughs> but they really liked it, um, and uh, I'm glad to see it um, continue. Yeah, as well. maybe there will be a
3: household rewatch before season two that you can partake in.
1: I think it does augur very well that how that performed because we've heard some Netflix cancellations of fairly popular shows that the the COVID production hurdle Mm -hmm. was too high to me that they're going to do another season and commit to it knowing what the obstacles to production are. It's like even more of a sign of strength than it would be normally to get another season, if that makes sense. Like it is a high bar to clear for them to commit to more. So I'm glad to see that. Yeah, other
3: good news, at least good news for my soul this week is that Cheryl Strayed is bringing back Dear Sugar um, this time it's going to be as a mm-hmm. newsletter. Uh, so once a month, she'll start, once a month starting in November, she's going to answer letters. You can send your questions to dear, dear sugar at gmail.com. And if you'd like to receive the answers, uh, this is a Substack newsletter that you do have to pay for. Um, I signed up this morning so I can tell you that the annual subscription is set at $55, but currently on sale for $44. Um, so if that's a, if a little Ooh. Cheryl Strayed, in your life is a thing that you would like once a month. You can sign up at sherylstrayed.substack.com. I'm looking forward to um, to having her voice back. I like. I think maybe I was on the out camp. I'm not sure where people shook out on the Deer Sugar podcast. I tried it a few times. I did not care for the dude mm. co-host. I just wanted to hear Cheryl Strade mm. talk forever. Mm. So I'm really excited about the concept of having just her wonderful. Her voice and her written essays come back, um for dear sugar, I think it, we need some Cheryl Strait in our lives right now.
1: It was—is that, that the going rate for sub? Like what? Tell, you oh. know, I know you do, Alan Helen. Like, yeah,
3: what's the, that's a great question. Where
1: I don't know this world at all. Tell me more about.
3: I would have to tell you. Um, I'll have to. I'll have to do some homework for next week because I do. I pay for Anne Helen Peterson's relatively mm-hmm. new. Um, Substack, And she just recently left BuzzFeed News to go solo. Um, so she's doing a couple of times a week, like deeply researched pieces. Right now, she and her partner, Charlie Warzel, who writes for The New York Times, are researching right. a book about like the current state of work and overwork and this is on the heels of her brand new book called can't even that's about burnout so she's really interested in both media culture and also uh, working culture and what's happening in society and then there are a few smaller things each week i want to say that that was like a 48 for the year and there are a couple entries a week so the volume there is Mm. is more than um what dear sugar is Uh, but you kind of you really know what you're getting for cheryl strade for that maybe slightly higher price. And I also pay yeah. for Ann Friedman's weekly newsletter, which I think is really mm. wonderful. Um, and I, I mm. think it's on a sliding scale. <laughs> I don't remember how much I paid yeah. for that, but those were definitely things that like earlier in the year, I was like, you know what? I really like these emails and I want these writers to survive. And we're in this really hard moment. So I'm going to pay for them. Um, I, I, I think it, that's
1: super interesting because... I Again, I'm not paying as much attention to the Kickstarters and Patreons of the world when it comes to book-related things. Like, I don't know, um, you know, N.K. Jemisin had a, a pretty successful Patreon. I don't know if she still has it or mm. not. I, I don't. I haven't looked at it in a while. But my first, my first reaction, I have to admit, to the price of this trade one was like, I just like little little in, uptake. I was like fifty bucks for the year. But I don't know if that's that was just my reaction for what it's worth. And you think about one a month from 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 That's what it is? So it's like you're paying four bucks an email?
3: There's also, I should say with Substack, there's also like community stuff built in. So there's a little bit of a walled garden that you're getting access to. So we don't know what that's going to look like for Cheryl Strayed, but once or twice a week in Anne Helen Peterson's thing, she'll ask like, I think there's a weekly thing like what are you watching and reading right now? And people comment, you know, and you have to be a paying subscriber to be able to comment. So there's some good community moderation stuff that happens around that. People talk about what they're reading and watching. And then there's usually some sort of topical conversation thread that she introduces. And it's been all kinds of things um, just in the couple of months. So maybe I think I mean, that is part of the value proposition. Um, Sure. Liz Lenz is another writer that I know has a Substack. I don't believe I've ponied up. For that one yet, but it seems to me like if you're, especially if you're fatigued with, I don't know, Facebook right now, um, having a the opportunity to like have some community interaction online with folks who have vetted themselves into you know being interested in the same kind of writing or thinking that you are might be part of it.
1: I think it's fascinating. If if you if any of y'all out there subscribe to an yes. email or a Patreon Let that's related to books you're reading, hit us up at, podcast at bookriot.com and tell us. Um, your experience, like this is a thing probably you need even more recommendations to know if it's good because, you know, it's kind of a new thing and what the communities are like inside the walled gardens would be helpful to know. I've got a secondary Cheryl Cheryl Strait thing that I've had on Mm. my list for a while, if we can hit this real quick. Oh, yeah. She has this audio, audible only original story called This Telling. Do you know about this? No. Narrated by Kristen Bell. And you saying no is the point of saying this, which is... (laughs) These Audible only original things don't get any juice right now on Audible. There's 188 ratings in the same series. There's a Roxanne. It's sort 41 minutes long, so it's one of these. It's one of these tweeners, mm-hmm. right? Like, what is that 41 minute thing? There's there's one by Cheryl Strayed, narrated by Kristen Bell. There's a Roxanne Gay one that's 41 minutes long, um, narrated by Samira Wiley. Um, this one's like a... So Roxanne Gaze is an unforgettable tale of nightmarish bureaucracy in which genetic profiling has redefined the unfit mother. Sounds interesting. Um, Emma Donahue has one. Hmm. Uh, Lisa Coe has one. Kate Atkinson has one. Um, with only 96 ratings. That we haven't talked or heard about these and that they have so few re- ratings relative to other audiobooks that are just generally available makes me think this is a losing game for auto i don't think this is gonna work like not in the spotify it's not this this doesn't work this doesn't work they need to be in libraries they need to be in other places i think this i really don't like the audible original and you can only do it on audible i really like audible Mm -hmm. as itself i like the experience i've been a long time customer i really don't like this and this is the most not liking thing about this strategy that I've found, right? Because no one's heard of you. We like Cheryl Strade. We like Roxanne Gay. How are you supposed to find out about this stuff? How, how are other people that you have to do the Audible subscription service? And I've had some conversations um, with people in the business about feeling like there might be subscription fatigue about audiobooks. Like, why are we still in this old mm-hmm. business model around audiobooks that's subscription first? Why can't I just go buy a single audiobook, w- one off? And not get gouged forty bucks, right. where it's eighteen dollars if you're an Audible member. I think this is weird legacy stuff that's got to go. So there's my there's my hot take for the day <laughs> that audiobook subscriptions, walled Garden exclusive audiobook, ain't nobody want that. Um, let's not do this anymore because I want to tell people about reading the Cheryl Trade. I want to go tell that they can go get it at their library. This is great. It's this is maybe the golden age of audio from your library right now in the middle of COVID. This is one of the great recompenses I and book lovers of all stripes have right now. It's like Gilead, it's basically an audiobook experience that you did with mm-hmm. Ethan Hawke. It's just it's a different situation. Can we not do this? <laughs> let's not do this. I second that. Can we emotion. all agree. Can we all come together in these difficult times and agree that we don't, this is not what we want?
3: Unification has to start somewhere and it might as well start with this.
1: 41 minute audio shorts. Let the revolution. Be- it's got a revolution's <laughs> got to begin somewhere. I don't know. Oh, you know what's next? Ebook pricing. Yeah, it's getting bad. Oh again.
3: man, we're at the end of the show. We can't talk about ebook pricing now. But please, no, we are.
1: We're. we're yeah, please we, got, please. we got 412 more episodes to do before we're. We got you know before it's 8:24. Yeah. So we got do, time. Please it's do please do send us. But I was looking at something recently that I did not like about <laughs> ebook pricing. So I've got that in my back. <laughs>
3: please do send us your if you subscribe to any great newsletters, be yeah. they Substack or. otherwise that are worth the dollars i am increasingly susceptible to this and very predisposed to give money to people whose work i like Um, and we would love it would be cool if we could like share a list of them with the listenership so send those to podcast at bookriot.com and next week for our bonus episode oh, that airs yeah. after the election. We're just going to each talk about a few books that we wish would be made into movies. So if you, in these next couple of days, want to tell us about your wish list, we'd love to hear about that. Mm-hmm. Also, podcast at bookriot.com, because that's where all of our emails
1: go. That's right. And um, we thank you so much for all the bonus episode ideas for that episode. We ignored them all, <laughs> but we really enjoyed talking about them and squeezed a whole other episode about just talking about them. The real podcast episode was the podcast episode we were making all along. Uh, Rebecca, we'll talk to you next time.
3: Have a good one.